The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who, and today we're discussing the seventh Doctor story, Ghost Light. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thanks. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, be sure to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on Facebook, where we're at facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who. And uh, find us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and be sure to leave comments there on uh, how you like to show, what things you like about it, and, and discuss it with us there. We'd love to hear from you on social media. I also want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network that you're sure to enjoy called The Catholics of Oz. Our friends Lindsay, Alino, and Carolyn, all from Melbourne, Australia, uh, join us every two weeks to talk about what's going on in faith, what's going on in Australia what's going on with uh, science, and more. So it's a lot of fun. Check it out uh, wherever you find uh, good, fine podca- podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Oz, O-Z. You've got this, I've noticed in, in the promos you do, Dom, that you have this fine podcasts thing. It's like wherever you find fine wines or something it, mm-hmm. that suggests there are podcast directories out there that are very selective and... <laughs> I don't know yes. if you. I don't know if you live in that world, but uh, it's a little different where I am. Well, I but, think there's the implication too, though, that there are not so fine podcasts there, but there are fine podcasts on those directories <laughs> as well. Right. It's it's a bit of a wink and a nod that uh, yes, yeah, uh, the, everything is in those directories, but you know that sort of thing. Wherever you find any podcast, we'll be there. Uh, there are podcast directories I think that we're not in the small obscure ones, and so but we're in all the big ones. Yeah. So we're talking about Ghostlight, and before we get into that discussion, Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens? It's 1883, and the Doctor brings Ace to a very special haunted house in the Victorian era. Ace has been to this house before, when she was 13 years old in 1983, and the house so scared her that she burned it down, being Ace. Now the Doctor tricks her into coming here so she can face her fears and learn the truth about the house. The truth is that it was built on the site of a spaceship that crashed long ago in Neanderthal times. The spaceship belonged to a strange being who is the personification of light, and he spent millions of years cataloging the life forms on Earth. But he's morbidly afraid of the idea of evolution and change, which would invalidate his catalog of Earth life forms and make it obsolete as life changes. Unfortunately, life on Earth is based on evolution and change, and while Light slept, elements from his ship, a control program and a survey program, started warring for control of the house. Around them, they've manipulated humans and others in a twisted evolution-based dance that makes everyone in the house a puppet in a sinister theater of absurdist drama. The Doctor frees Light, who decides to kill all life on Earth to stop evolution, as you do. But the Doctor defeats him, and Light freezes himself and disperses. Afterwards, Control, Survey, and some of the manipulated humans take Light's ship to explore the universe and make their own catalog of exotic life forms on alien planets. The end. Wow. 
you actually made that make sense now. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I wasn't quite sure what was going on until you explained it that way. And so now I understand what happened. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is a very, it's a three-parter. It's very strange. And mm. I love it. It's an atmosphere mm-hmm. piece. Yeah. There are a few interesting things to know about this. First one, we might want to talk about the title, Ghost Light. Mm-hmm. That's a theatrical term. A ghost light is a literal light that is left turned on in a theater, in a darkened theater. And the legend is that ghost lights are there to scare away ghosts. But the real reason for ghost lights is so you'll have at least a little bit of illumination in the theater for safety reasons, so that you don't fall off the stage or fall in the orchestra pit while you're getting to the lighting panel to bring the lights up and so forth. So that's what a ghost light is. Another interesting thing to note about this episode is the backstory to how Mm -hmm. it got written, because at the time, this is the seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy, and at the time, the script editor for the series was a guy named Andrew Cartmel, and the he had what was known as the Cartmel Master Plan, which was an attempt to build more mystery back into the Doctor. And the idea was that the Doctor himself was going to turn out to be one of the founders of Time Lord Society, alongside Rassilon and Omega. There was mm-hmm. a, supposed to be a figure known as The Other, who was going to be the Doctor. And we've had hints of that before, like when we watched Silver Nightmare, and Lady Painfort was talking about, mm-hmm. oh, you're so much more than an ordinary Time Lord. Eventually, a f- something like the Cartmel Master Plan became the Timeless Child in right. recent Doctor Who. But uh, this story was originally going to be set on Gallifrey, and the house that they visit was going to be the doctor's ancestral home. But uh, the producer at the time, John Nathan Turner, thought that would reveal too much about the doctor too quickly. And so they reworked it so it's a weird haunted house on Earth instead, and it ties into Ace's backstory rather than the doctor's. Mm -hmm. And And they do uh, eventually in, in, again, books, which are kind of... Oh, right. You know, they have Lung Barrel is the name of the book where, and that's the name of the doctor's ancestral home. So it kind of deals with that. But of course, you know, the books aren't, aren't quite as canon as the TV show or even Big Finish. So, yeah. And Lung Barrow is a particularly difficult novel to find because, mm-hmm. and copies of it, even though it's just a little short novel, it's like, you know, minimum length, 40,000 words or something, like all the Doctor Who adaptations, it's, um, it was it had a normal print run for a novel at the time, and because it ended up being so revelatory of the doctor's backstory, it is very hard to find. It costs hundreds of dollars unless yeah. you download it surreptitiously from the internet. Mm. Right there are there are people who have scanned in scanned it in, and you can read it that way. Yeah, uh, one of the things I wanted to, to to mention as well is that the writer, the the screenwriter, was one of only. Two, I think, ever in Classic Who to have not been a professional screenwriter before. Like, he was uh, like a fanfic writer or something like that beforehand, mm-hmm. uh, and they hired him to do this. So that was kind of fascinating. Yeah. Um, it, I, I, he did a great job. I love this story. Um, mm-hmm. It reminds me of a few things. It reminds me of the 1972 movie Horror Express, which mm-hmm. uh, stars Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. 
and it's about a train that is like crossing from Russia back into Eastern, back into Western Europe. And it has a lot of the same vibe of like some, even though it's set in the Victorian era, mm-hmm. um, it has alien stuff going on and it's creepy and it's, it's really weird. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of Horror Express. It also reminds me of a contemporary program from America known as Dark Shadows, which was oh, a, sure. soap, a soap opera that I would have watched as a kid because it had vampires and monsters <laughs> and stuff on it. And it was set in a creepy house. And it reminds me of that. Also, there's a reference in this to The Lost World by Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's implied that The Lost World, even though Doyle didn't realize it, is based on a real place. There's a couple of references. There's also a reference to Pygmalion and Eliza Doolittle. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, and also the Hitchhiker's Guide. There's a Hitchhiker's Guide reference, which Douglas Adams was a script editor on Doctor Who of the Past. Right. So Well, you also have uh, Margaret Margaret Mead, the, the anthropologist, who coined the term noble savage or used right. the term noble savage. Right. That was in there, too. You know, go ahead. Oh, well, I was going to say this also. They didn't know the show was going to be canceled. This is in the last season, and there are only mm-hmm. two more stories after this one for the Seventh Doctor. They didn't know the show was going to be canceled. They thought they were coming back for another season. And it turned out, because of production order versus airing order, that this is actually the last classic Doctor Who story ever to be filmed. Yes. That's <laughs> literally what I was just about to say, so that's good. Uh, yeah, it, it, that that's kind of fascinating to me. It's the, the, the very end here. You know, this is the pinnacle of classic Who. Uh, yeah. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, it's also ma- definitely the strangest Doctor Who story ever filmed. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with that. You know, you mentioned the, this whole like the, the darker turn for the Doctor, and you've also talked before about how the Doctor is setting uh, Ace up in a way to to, to, to kind of turn her against him a little bit. And what was this all about? Why was the Doctor putting her in these situations? The ultimate plan was for Ace to become a Time Lady that she was going to go off to Gallifrey and study to become a Time Lady at the Academy, and he's preparing her for that. Oh, okay, right. okay. I and that's so that's the talk about an initiation test that he says in this. Right. This is part yeah. of that. That was the talk at the very beginning. You know, it, I thought it was interesting here. Ace looks much older, more mature in this one than she has in previous episodes. I think the way they have her dressed, she's not in the leather coat still. Yeah. And, like was, they had or her, nylon, yeah. <laughs> nylon yeah, was, coat with patches. Yeah, yeah the 1980s yeah. nylon coat that was right. so popular. That's what it was. Yeah, with the the uh, like the space shuttle patches and stuff. Yeah, now she just she's dressed as you know a, a, a young twenties. I just thought it was interesting that they had kind of started to perhaps move in that direction. Per, maybe because they were going to have her going off on her own as a time lady of her of, on her mm-hmm. own initiative. There. Right. Yeah. Well, what's it's interesting? Oh, Go ahead, Father. I was going to say it's interesting because she's. It appears to be carrying it, that coat, but you don't see it because there's a couple of scenes at the very beginning when she's, mm-hmm. you know, she steps out of the TARDIS and she's got her hand, you know, over her shoulder, like she's carrying the coat over her shoulder, but you don't actually see it in frame. And it right. was, it was kind of an, and that's a kind of an interesting camera choice. I don't know if they didn't have the coat for this footage or whatever, but, but of course, yeah. again, you don't see it because she changes fairly quickly. Right. Yeah. She wears a uh, strapless evening gown at first, which is very attractive, but also is considered very risque by the uh, <laughs> by the Victorians. It's not that they didn't have strapless evening gowns then, but you didn't wear them around during the day. 
Right. right. And they were like formal wear for, you know, special occasions. And, um, and, and so they comment on that and the doctor tells her, listen, go along with them, get dressed in something they would consider appropriate. And she, and she then goes with one of the supporting characters, a, um, uh, a daughter of the original householder who is named, uh, Gwendolyn. And they go to, you know, some dressing room they have in the house and, Ace insists on putting on actual, actually men's clothing, men's mm-hmm. formal wear this time. Mm-hmm. So they come out in these tuxedos, which is also considered inappropriate for, <laughs> for them since they're women. But Ace is having fun. So that's yeah. all she cares about. Right. Kind of reminds me a little bit of the Eighth Doctor companion, Charlie Pollard. You know, the, we've talked mm-hmm. about that before, those comparisons. Yeah. And speaking of her, I was just going to mention... This story, in some ways, is very reminiscent of of one of the Eighth Doctor audio stories that we've reviewed here, "The Chimes at Midnight," right? Yeah, which is which is also set in a house of this period where the the characters in the house are under some weird manipulative control that allows that makes them do this kind of repetitive, absurdist theater of the absurd dance in the house, right? Right, and well, by dance, I mean reenacting certain yeah. things over and over again, not a literal dance. Right. And that's actually one of the interesting things where it starts is you have these regular servants, these, these, these women who work in the house, the housekeeper and perhaps a couple maids, who are very in- intent on getting out of the house by sundown. We, you, no one stays in the house after sundown. And so they, they get out, they, they go home, and then a bell rings and these like closets open and out march these ro- very robotic looking maids in in the the classic French maid outfit, whereas the other ones didn't have that. And and everyone is and there's a in, Mrs. In Pritchard their, in their yeah. livery. Yes, uh, and then there's a Mrs. Pritchard, and they're all very robotic and controlled, and all this very strange behavior. Um, so it it really amps up the creep, <laughs> the creepiness mm-hmm. of this story right from the start. Actually, that kind of ties into a parapsychological phenomenon known as a haunting. Now, when people think of hauntings, they typically think of a ghost being Mm -hmm. around. But actually, this is a term of art in parapsychology, and a haunting is not normally thought of as involving a ghost uh, who's actually there interacting. That would be an apparition. Mm -hmm. What a haunting involves is a strange repetition of a sequence of events or behaviors as a, like as that just keep repeating themselves with no rhyme or reason mm. as if it's a, a a a recording of some past event and it, and hauntings are often in, understood in terms of place memories that a place can have a memory that repeats the same sequence over and over again and that's very much like the kind of robotic so every day at sundown this sequence starts again and mm-hmm. there may be variations over time, but it keeps repeating itself based on whatever ancient forces laid down the place memory. Okay, yeah, I get that. I get that. Uh, so let's talk quickly about the the people that we encounter, or the Doctor and Ace encounter. So there's a there's a guy who is a um, he's looking for someone named Redvers Fen Cooper to save him from someone named Josiah Samuel Smith. And it will turn out that the guy looking for Fen Cooper is himself Fen Cooper, uh, yep. at least according to my and understanding. They, and they even uh, poke at that where they say, yeah, that, I'm, I'm tired of that Fen Cooper. All he does is talk about himself. 
Yeah, which is a, which is a great line. Yeah, so he's got a kind of psychotic dissociative identity disorder. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Reverend Matthews who shows up from the Royal Society, uh, who's come to reject Josiah Smith's Darwinian claptrap about how industry is polluting everything or something. Um, it, and evolution, and, and evolution yeah, as yeah. a general, you know that dar- that you know that idea that we evolved from apes, you know, or primordial right. goo. He says, "Yes, yeah." Um, then there's a butler who is actually an actual Neanderthal uh, named Nimrod. Mm-hmm. Um, Nimrod is, was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Thus, it is said, Nimrod, like a like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Yes, mm. uh, and. Uh, there's the aforementioned Gwendolyn, there's a, and then the Mrs. Pritchard, and it will turn out that they are mother and daughter and don't realize it, uh, which is interesting. They're, and all these people, well, so Gwendolyn and Mrs. Pritchard are under some sort of compulsion. They're, yeah, or they're something. real humans, though. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, Fen Cooper has that dissociative disorder of some sort. Uh, Nimrod is is in control. He is like in in control of him of his faculties. He's not. Mm-hmm. Under a compulsion, so that's interesting. And he's uh, not just a Neanderthal; he's the last Neanderthal, right? Right. right. Uh, who has a memory of uh, this being called Light? Uh, yeah, he, that will encounter later. He calls him the Burning One, and his Neanderthal right. tribe worshipped him. Yes, yep. and then there's this Josiah Smith, the, who appears to be the the. He, he presents himself as sort of the 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 owner of the house or the you know the the person in charge here, um, who the doctor accuses of being an alien, and and, and is what well, it turns out yeah. he's a he's really the survey program yeah. from Light's mm-hmm. ship, and he's taken biological form, and he has over time we learn shed prior biological forms like husks as he evolves his way towards being a Victorian gentleman, which is his goal. He wants to be a Victorian gentleman. But there are these other husks around, one of which has a reptile head, another of which has an insect head that are prior stages of evolutionary development for him. And the husks are still active and have agency. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he... he, yeah, and he even sheds his current human form to become an even more perfect Victorian gentleman. So we've eventually got him and three of his husks running around. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and uh, they've got control uh, in, a, in a locked room in the basement, or, which turns out to be the spaceship, uh, or uh, I don't know if it's part of the spaceship or not, but they, they've got control with this other program in the form of a woman locked in this room. And and she wants to be evolve to become a Victorian ladylike, yep. <laughs> right? Right. A, la- a ladylike is the verb that they. I mean, the noun that they use. Uh, and Smith has a plan to take over the world because, of course, uh, by assassinating uh, Queen Victoria. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And and then giving the empire new direction to right. make it expand again. Also, uh, Red vs. Finn Cooper is mm-hmm. in his psychologically addled state is also wanting to assassinate Queen Victoria. He says he's hunting the crowned Saxe Coburg. Yep. <laughs> it sounds like a bird. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's the crowned Saxe Coburg yep. sounds like a bird, but it actually so Saxe Coburg was Queen Victoria's family that mm-hmm. yes. uh that her husband Albert was part of. 
and she's crowned since she's the monarch in 1917. Now, Saxe Coburg, as you can tell, sounds like a German name, yeah. and it is. And in 1917, during World War One or the Great War, because it sounded so German, they changed it to Windsor. Mm. Right. And that's how we got the House of Windsor. Right. Yeah, that's the thing a lot of people don't realize is the uh, the British monarchs, going back several centuries, have actually been German. <laughs> yeah. It's like the well, House of Hanover as well. Yeah. Yeah, and there was all this, you know, intermarrying among European royalty. I mean, like the right. the Tsarina of Ru- the last Tsarina of Russia was a member of this family from Germany, although she was from England. Yeah. Yeah. It's very, yeah, it's very, uh, yeah. Anyway, but, and, but, it's confusing. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead, Father. Oh, I was going to say, and as we found out in the 10th, 10th Doctor's time, it has, carries the werewolf gene as well. So Yeah, right. That's, that's true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, by the way, I wanted to mention, so uh, Reverend Ernest Matthews has come from the Royal Society, and that's a real thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. It, the Royal Society, its formal name is the Royal Society of London for Improving Natural Knowledge. And it is essentially... Uh, Britain's uh, Academy of Sciences, and it's a very prestigious institution. At the time, it had, and going forward, it's had lots of Nobel Prize winners as members, and and I watch their videos on YouTube, especially their Christmas lectures. (laughs) Yes, Mm. it is. Yeah, you're right. They show up throughout any British literature involving you know explorers or scientists they constantly show up in the in literature so it you you must have encountered them if you read any of that uh, yeah and 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 Matthews warns Josiah Smith that his crazy theories of he's going to be held to account by the royal society for his crazy theories about evolution if he can't justify them yeah some people say that this is setting up a religion versus science plot in this story but that's not re- mm. that's a that's not really what it is no, I mean it does. It does affirm that evolution is real, but it doesn't go out of its way to bash religion. It does. Yeah. It does make. I mean, Ernest Matthews is kind of a close-minded religious figure, um, right. but you know there were close-minded religious figures at the time <laughs> right. about evolution. Right. So it, you know that's that's fair. Uh, it's it it doesn't beyond him, which is a historical reality that there were such people. It doesn't go out of its way to make religion look bad or take other pot shots or anything. The funny thing that it does with him is he's he's going on about how the absurdity of the idea. He's like having tea, yeah, with uh, Josiah Smith, Smith, who's in the process of molting his current husk. And as they're having tea, the um, uh, the Reverend Matthews uh, is going on about how absurd it is that human ancestry goes back to a a uh, protoplasmic globule, which mm-hmm. is a reference to the Mikado, where the character Poobah, who is the highest, the best bred of everyone in the town of Titipu, is very proud that he is of pre-Adamite ancestral descent, and he can trace his ancestry back, <laughs> back, back to a protoplasmal primordial atomic globule. <laughs> and, and, and it's similarly absurd, the Reverend says, that, um, that he, any of his ancestors were ever a monkey, which was mm-hmm. one of the jokes at the time. You right. know, like if Mr. Darwin thinks we would, were descended from monkeys, would he please tell us which one of his ancestors was one? And 
uh, Josiah Smith gives him as part of the tea service, he gives him a banana to eat. Upon and upon eating it, Reverend Matthews starts turning into a monkey human hybrid. Right, yep. right. And yeah, he eventually is that that hybrid. Uh yeah, it's very it, it actually is kind of amusing and the actor does a, a fairly good job of Yeah. He he starts hold holding his hands at a weird angle to make them look more like an ape's hands and stuff. Yeah. By the way, there's also one other uh, human under the influence of the house, which is a guy that they're keeping in a drawer. <laughs> yes, um, I was going to mention him oh, just yeah. now. Yeah. yeah, he's a police inspector named McKenzie, who apparently was sent to the house like three years earlier and fell under its control. And so he's just been in storage all this time. He was sent here to investigate the disappearance of the original householder, Sir George Pritchard, who is Gwendolyn's father and Mrs. Pritchard's husband. And he disappeared and went to Java, which is code <laughs> yep. in the house for he's dead. Yeah. Yep. And this is reminiscent of the uh, play and later movie, Arsenic and Old Lace, where yep. you have uh, these two spinster sisters living in a house by themselves, and they encounter a whole series of, you know, like homeless old men who, who they bring in and give them tea and poison them. Mm. Uh, to put them out of their misery. They think they're doing this out of kindness. And then to get rid of the bodies, they have their crazy uncle uh, or crazy nephew who thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt take them to Panama, which means ah. bury them in the basement. Yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing that as a kid. My dad, uh, the, the, watching the movie with my dad, it was a very strange movie. It's a really, <laughs> it's a really good movie. You should definitely yeah. rewatch it. Yeah. It's, it's funny. It is funny. I remember laughing. The that definitely sounds like you know telling kids, oh, we had to take Fluffy out to the out to the farm upstate. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, they went to live on a farm upstate. Uh, so the doctor works to free control from the imprisonment, uh, and also to free uh, Fern Cooper uh, and, and, and Light. And mm -hmm. well, and then yeah, because then once control is free, she brings Light from the basement. Which is confusing, but she brings the, well, the character of Light from the basement. Yeah, and it's in the basement because that's the ship that crashed. The house was right. built over it. Right. So the being called Light isn't... Someone calls it an angel, Light. Ace does, yeah. Yeah, come to survey life on Earth, but it was asleep in the stone spaceship. The survey got out of control, and, and sur the survey was Josiah. Light is ruthless and pitiless and doesn't see the humanity of the people and i'm thinking this is an analog to lucifer right i mean lucifer mm. literally is the angel of light the, the name literally means light hmm. kinda well lucifer means light bringer but um yeah. i mean lux is light and the fur right. means yep. maker or bringer sure um i didn't get the idea that light was meant to be lucifer i, I mean i guess i could see well, that but i just got him to be He's a crazy. He's a crazy Doctor Who super being. Well, I was more like I think the writer's intent was to evoke in the in the viewer's mind, you know, this idea of this connection to Lucifer. Not that the character itself is Lucifer, but like the mm -hmm. Angel of Light being, you know, being dastardly and scary mm -hmm. and, and and a bad guy. Well, um, I do think there was a, a definite parallel between the the Reverend and Light because both of them rejected evolution. Yeah. The Reverend, because of religious reasons, Light, because he wanted everything to stay the same. He hated change. Every little change, which, of course, the doctor eventually uses with him. Oh, you just changed place. You just changed your mind. 
Right. You know, and, he uses that to defeat him. And the seventh doctor in particular is all about change and chaos. Yep. That's true. That's true. It it, it seems like a, a little bit of an overly simplistic solution to this because like, why would this being be so easily like, oh, you've, you're changing just by walking across the room. Oh no, uh, that's terrible. Yep. Well, it just seems like kind of a weird resolution. Well, it's part of the theater of the absurd. Yeah. Um, we're not meant to, to parse this with real-world logic. We're meant to parse it with dream logic. Okay. And, and on that level, light is this vastly superior to human being that does not understand humanity or the world and how it right. works and is repelled by that. And he, on a, if you want to get psychological about it, on a deeper level, he represents the resistance to change that is built into the human psyche. Okay, okay, I see that, I see that. Also, he's, he's in control of the ship, so both Survey, a.k.a. Josiah Smith, and Control are afraid of light. Right. But the Doctor made a deal with Control that if she would bring him out, the Doctor would help Control become a ladylike. Right, right, right. And, and but, so, oh, uh, yeah. also, light brought with him uh, from the Neanderthal age, uh, Nimrod. Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. and I like, I really like Nimrod's assessment of the modern world, the world he's been brought to. He refers to it as a desert of smoke and straight lines, <laughs> which which is very descriptive of Victorian era London. There was lots of smoke, and because of the industry. And and all the buildings, you know, it's, they're all straight lines. It's not organic like it mm. was. Or you had organic dwellings in uh, in Neanderthal times. That's it. Yeah, that was a good good turn of phrase there. I like that one. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, light wants to reduce the planet to primordial soup. Start again, and you know, mm-hmm. to and well, and then burn it to keep the his catalog safe so that it doesn't get changed. He's a great bureaucrat. Uh, the the catalog is more important than the thing. Uh, and there's a scene where they're at dinner, and the doctor keeps telling Ace, "Don't eat, don't eat the soup." Just kind of yeah. in the side, don't yeah. eat the soup. Because it more turns than, out more than once. Yeah, yep. it turns out the soup is the policeman, right? I think the policeman is. Yes, yes. Yeah, it was the policeman because he pulls out one of his chains, like keys, keychain or whatever, right. turned right. back in into primordial soup, which is then served <laughs> for dinner as soup. <laughs> don't eat the soup. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Uh, he also uh, compares Josiah to a cuckoo invading the nest because he showed up at the Pritchard house household mm-hmm. and kind of kicks out Mister Pritchard and takes his place, kind of like a cuckoo does when. Uh, it, in fact, the, we've had an episode recently where the doctor compares. Um, it's the one with the little boy with the nightmares. Oh uh, right, yeah, the uh, night terrors, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah, uh, where a cuckoo comes in and displaces the actual egg that belongs on the nest with its own egg and so that the the uh, unsuspecting brood. bird will raise the brood as its own. Yeah, so cuckoos yeah. are brood parasites. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, so Josiah is compared to being a brood parasite. Um, now, did Josiah, was he out, was survey out surveying and then came back or was he in the, the ship and came up from the ship? He came up from the ship, and he That's was the, the first to come up from the ship and start con- taking control of the house and the family that lived in it, and he wanted to become the householder, apparently, so he right. uh, he used his uh, mesmeric or hypnotic influence over mm-hmm. the mother and daughter in the house to have the daughter send her father to Java. Right. 
And yeah. then she became his ward. Mm-hmm. Right. That's, that's uh, what I thought. So the mother and daughter, as uh, at, they actually eventually figure out who they each are to each other. They don't realize they're mother and daughter mm-hmm. until uh, later on. But that's when light turns them to stone. Uh, yep. at, just at the moment when they've reunited, which is really creepy. Well, they, they've reunited, but they, the mother also says we're, we're already too far gone. Yeah. You know, they've, they've already, you know, they, they've woken up, but they realize that, or she realized that they, they can't go back to where they were before. Right. Right. So Josiah is taken prisoner by control. And then Nimrod, as you mentioned, Nimrod, Fern Cooper and control are going to be the new crew of this spaceship and go off and explore the galaxy in their own big finish adventures. Did they actually do a big finish adventures with these guys? <laughs> no. Oh, okay. No. Not, uh, not that I've encountered anyway. That that would cl- clearly be a <laughs> potential. That would be quite the quite the adventures, yeah. Yes. I, yes. I, I think you need to introduce a new character, though, because somebody in your continuing adventures has to be a a, a, a mainline character that can make things in, understandable for the audience. <laughs> That's yeah. right. And, and yeah. with these guys, you need your Andy Griffith in the town of crazies. Yes. <laughs> right, right, right. I will say I, I liked control in this though because she went from you know very rudimentary you know short sentences to very proper English yeah. throughout it. You know she kind of changed, and at the point where uh, Josiah Smith drops out, she takes over as the one who's more eloquent and right, right, as the proper Victorian lead, uh, household leader lady. of the household. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned the light gets dispersed. So the doctor. Uh, presents him with his uh, paradox and uh, the house will remain but will remember the lingering evil the, so the evil mm-hmm. presence will stay in it and that's what ace encounters in 1983 and causes her to burn it down exactly 100 years later and i like ace's only regret is that she didn't blow up the house instead <laughs> which is which is even more ace after that's, she would have mm-hmm. taken her chemistry classes and learned how to make explosives yes that's a, that's very on brand for ace so, uh, any other notes on this episode that we that we missed, Father Corey? So, there's one line when when with the meal with the primordial soup, where the doctor mentions the cream of Scotland Yard, and of oh. course, you know that can mean two things: you know, the best of Scotland Yard, or like cream of mushroom soup. Uh, <laughs> oh. That was I love that line. Yeah. And then the doctor makes a passing reference to the Flying Scotsman, and the Flying Scotsman is an extremely well known uh, steam engine. Is it's all it's going to be actually a hundred years next year. So in twenty twenty three, it'll be a hundred years old engine. It's still up. It still runs. Um, it's in Great Britain, but for like three years, they actually brought it over to the United States from like sixty nine to seventy two. They oh, brought wow. it here to the United States and it toured around the country. So it's it's one of the most famous steam engines, and it was a passenger steam engine. It's you know beautiful green engine. It looks awesome, and it you could go to the UK today and and uh, ride behind it. Oh wow! So, cool. Which which it would have been an anachronistic reference because that's after that's about fifty years or forty years after the date of this story. Um, yeah, yeah, it would have been anachronistic yeah. for this story. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of funny. Yeah, Jimmy, any notes? So I like the theater of the absurd quality of this. In the, for people who haven't seen it, theater, theater of the absurd is, as its name would suggest, deliberately absurd. And it uses things that are, it sometimes uses things that are repetitive and meaningless and absurd plot loops that don't make logical sense as a kind of way of stimulating the audience's imagination. It's like, what is going on here? And kind of shocking the the audience out of complacency. 
and there's a certain aesthetic to the to the theater of the absurd that i mean i i'm sure it's not for everybody or it would be extremely popular but but it, there is something there give it a chance and you know figure out how the aesthetic works and you may appreciate it more than if you try approaching it as oh i'm going to sit down for a normal linear doctor who narrative Right. Um, this is trying to do something different, and I, I like that, that they are trying to do that. Uh, in the story, we mentioned there's there's a Pygmalion. There's actually more than one Pygmalion reference. A Pygmalion was a famous play from the 19th century about a man who takes a uh, Cockney woman under his wing to educate her to become ladylike. And I, I want to is, is it George Bernard Shaw? That That's what I was thinking yeah. as well. Yeah, and um, it's also the basis of the musical My Fair Lady, if you've ever mm-hmm. seen that. Um, and the character that's educated is Eliza Doolittle. And at one point early on in the story, Ace is speaking up out of turn, and the doctor says, "Quiet, Eliza." Yep. And <laughs> and that makes it very clear that that that's what the doctor is doing with Ace. He's educating her. And this right. is not the first time we've seen this on Doctor Who, because in the fourth Doctor's time. You also had a Pygmalion-like relationship with Leela and mm-hmm. the Fourth Doctor. Mm-hmm. Later, as uh, Ace and Gwendolyn are getting dressed, the role kind of reverses. Oh, and I'm sorry, not Ace and Gwendolyn. It's Ace and Control, because yeah. Ace wants because Control wants to be a ladylike, and so Ace has got her in front of a mirror, and she's brushing Control's hair, and she's giving her elocution lessons, which is mm-hmm. exactly what. Uh, Henry Harrison gives Eliza Doolittle in Pygmalion. Pygmalion mm-hmm. is a reference to Greek mythology. Um, there's a statue, of, like of the perfect woman named, named, the statue is named Pygmalion, and then Pygmalion is brought to life in the myth. And so mm-hmm. it's a metaphor for taking a, an uneducated woman and turning her into a proper lady. Right. But Control is taking elocution lessons, and Ace is giving them and so she's teaching her to say, the rain in Spain falls mainly down the drain, which, <laughs> <Yeah>. which, <laughs> which is a great variant on the classic trope. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plain, but down the drain works too. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we've got a nice role reversal where Ace is in the, who is very unladylike, is in the Henry Harrison role of being the elocution teacher. Yes. Yeah. There is, uh, there's also a reference I liked to, uh, when they're discussing evolution, uh, Josiah Smith alludes to an actual thing that has been cited in favor of, of short time scale evolution. He refers to some moths that mm-hmm. are adapting their color to reflect the uh, industrial smoke that's being emitted. Mm-hmm. So the moths are becoming darker. And this is something that actually has been cited as a case of microevolution, where one species yep. is adapting to its to its environment, and um, and and the moths become darker colored in response to the smoke that is getting on the buildings and making it easier for predators to spot them if they're still light light colored. So they they become the ones. The theory is the ones that are darker colored survive because they don't get eaten and they reproduce. And darker colored ones become more prominent. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but years, years and years ago, I saw a creationist response to this that said, dudes, the moths are just getting soot on them. 
That's why they're darker. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I'd have to check to see if that's true or not. Yeah. You'd think someone would check, but yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Uh, You you could tell they're getting soot on them because you could brush it off. You could brush it off. But then you can, if you brush a moth's wings, you're going to take whatever's on there off. Yeah. You know, because they've got those powdery wings. Let's see. The uh, I like that uh, at one point the all the butterfly and bug samples that they have in the house, which would be typical of an of a natural philosopher of this period, mm-hmm. he would have such collections. They start coming back to life, yeah, which is a really nice thing. And 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 in in at one moment the doctor is talking, and we've just been hearing about civilization and stuff like that, and now the do- as we cut in on the doctor. He, we hear him saying that, you know, the first stages are like foraging and, fi- and fishing, and, and then you can work your way up from, from that to proper civilization. And as, we, as the camera pans back, we see he's not talking to a human being. He's talking to a cockroach he's got on his hand. <laughs> yeah, right, right. And he's giving this cockroach assurance and advice about being able to develop a future civilization. <laughs> That's funny. There's also a really effective moment where Ace, before it's been revealed that it's, this is part of the hinting that Ace burns down this house in 1983, but there is a really effective breakdown where Ace is alone in the house and there are these sound effects going. It like becomes darker and we're hearing a fire engine and Ace is like collapsing under the psychological pressure and she's screaming, I'm, I'm not guilty. I couldn't help it. And it's not yet revealed what she what mm-hmm. she's confessing to here but it's it i i found it very effective uh on yeah. an emotional level what she's doing i also found it uh effective and and repellent that light in order to understand current humans dismantles a housemaid yeah, yeah that was creepy that. yeah yeah and he also is then complaining about he can even see evolution happening around him he he projects some light from his hand and we see these glowing little dots swirling around his hand and he's saying, look at these microbes, they're evolving even as I'm talking. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, well, yeah, okay, they would do that. Yep. We also have the line from the doctor that you mentioned, uh, Dom, that's the Hitchhiker's Guide reference that uh, the doctor says, whoever said Earthmen never invite their ancestors around to dinner. <laughs> which is 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 out of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy where a, a, the book the hitchhiker's guide itself at one point talks about how humans are ape descended not monkey descended that, <laughs> that humans are ape descended and never invite their ancestors around for dinner <laughs> i also like a line the doctor gives uh you know he's brought here he's brought ace here to make her face her fears and he tells her it's a surprise mm-hmm. and she keeps asking what the surprise is and he won't tell her until she figures out this is the house in Perryvale that she was so scared of but later on after light has come out and is you know explaining his world destruction plans the doctor says i knew it was a trap as soon as i walked into it yeah. <laughs> 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 So lots of lots of stuff to love in this episode from oh, my yeah. perspective. One yep. one minor correction, Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, you said for Pygmalion, it's Henry Harrison. And it's actually Henry Higgins. Henry Higgins, yes. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. I'm sure there was somebody already pounding on the keyboard as, you know, <laughs> yeah, as soon as correct. you said it. It's not Henry yeah. Harrison. No. Thank you. You've <laughs> saved them the trouble. 
Yeah. Yep. <laughs> the do- oh, one awesome. other thing. The doctor also has a great line um, that I'm I'm going to look for a way to use in the future in some connection where the doctor is saying like, "Come on, Ace, let's go. The sun has got its hat on." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that'll do it for our discussion of Ghostlight then. Uh, you know, we get rapidly with a lot of these doctors. We're, we're coming to the ends of their runs, but we'll continue talking about these doctors and other media. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll have mm-hmm. uh, lots of to, to talk about with the seventh doctor and the sixth doctor. So uh, a lot of fun uh, to, to talk about these. Um, so as we wrap up, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Sean B., Paul M., Gretchen L., Benjamin D., and Father Anthony G., their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue The Secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. We'd love to hear what you think about the seventh Doctor story called Ghost Light. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 11th Doctor story, Nightmare in Silver. Until then, Jimmy Yakin, thank you for joining me and sharing the Secrets of Doctor Who. Let's go, Dom. The sun has got its hat on. <laughs> and Father Cory Stiga, thank you as well. Thank you, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, what about Josiah? He sounded a little husky. Dad joke.